Section 26 of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Madison Rutherford. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 6, edited by Francis Rottweiler. Botany, Chapter 6, Organogeny and Adaptation. Reference has already been made to the service which Schleiden did in promulgating the idea of the cell as the morphological unit of plant structure. As will be seen, he was not, indeed, the first to observe them, though he was the first to properly understand their significance. Since the cell is the ultimate unit to which morphological discussions must necessarily hark back, it is well to examine a little more closely just what these cells are. A thin cross-section from the stem or leaf of any plant shows, when magnified, a network of cells not unlike those of the honeycomb. This fact was first discovered in 1667 by Robert Hooke, an Englishman, who happened to take such a section to test the improvements he was making on the microscope. The first real study of cell structure was made by Malfighi, an Italian, in the year 1617-1. The section thus examined appears to be divided into small chambers or cavities, separated from each other by a common wall. The single cavity with its enclosing wall, like a room in a house, received the name of cell. The origin of these cells, or elements of plant structure, was at first supposed to be similar to that of air bubbles in a somewhat viscous liquid, but this supposition was soon found untenable, as in no young growing tissues was there found any indication of the liquid in which the bubbles were supposed to form. At a much later period, it was discovered that the wall, or membrane, which gave the name to the cavity which it surrounds, was really the less important part, and that the cell contents were the only necessary element. This is shown by the fact that the wall is a product of the contents, and that at certain periods of the plant's life the cell may exist without it. Discoveries of this kind gave rise to an entirely different conception of the nature of the plant cell. It is now known that this, in its simplest or least differentiated condition, consists of a small portion of the viscous liquid known as protoplasm, in which, under ordinary magnification, no structures are visible. It is in this general sense that Reinke defines a plant cell as follows. An individualized, not farther divisible structure, consisting of or containing protoplasm, which either shows life processes or has shown them. In studying the anatomy of a plant cell, says E. L. Gregory in Elements of Plant Anatomy, it will be necessary to consider one in its ordinary condition of development, that is, as an element of any plant differentiated sufficiently to perform the ordinary functions of plant cells. Such cells are usually considered as consisting of two parts, wall and sentence, or, as it is frequently stated, wall and protoplasm, the latter including a nucleus and one or more vacuoles. Before taking up the study of these parts separately, it may be well to examine the cell as a whole in reference to several features, namely size, form, mechanical and physiological principles, and finally to discuss briefly certain theories concerning organized structures in general. By far, the greater number of plant cells are microscopic, but they vary greatly in size. The smallest occur among the organisms known as bacteria. Some of these are spherical in form and measure from 7 tenths to 1 micromillimeter in diameter. Cells vary as much in form as in size. Those without a membrane incline to the spherical shape, since the protoplasm composing them is in a half-liquid state. Many swarm spores are pear-shaped, 
but they generally assume a spherical form on coming to rest. The forms of some naked cells are subject to rapid change. In all the higher plants, new cells are formed by the growth of walls across the cavities of the old cells. The new walls join the old at certain angles, and when the cells are young, they are inclined to a hexagonal form. As growth continues, the form is liable to change in various ways. If the cell should grow equally fast in all parts, it would tend to retain its original form. This very rarely happens, and even when it does, the shape of such a cell is influenced in a greater or less degree by the manner of growth of those surrounding it, as the growing wall is flexible and its shape easily changed by pressure or traction from without. The individuality of the cell is shown by the fact that each has its own predetermined manner of development. All young cells of any plant are, at first, nearly similar in form and size, but later on each cell is seen to follow certain laws of growth which are, to a certain extent, independent of all external forces. From these laws, together with various mechanical causes, arises the great variety of form in the cells of ordinary plants. The peculiar forms common to certain unicellular plants illustrate even better than those of higher ones the inherent tendency of cells to grow in a certain manner. From the small size of the average cell, two advantages result to the plant. First, strength and solidity. Secondly, the greatest possible amount of surface for the transfer of cell contents. The first ensures mechanical support. The second is connected with those changes in the chemical nature of the cell contents by which the life processes of the plant as a whole are carried on. Herbert Spencer included a consideration of plants in his scheme of the principles of biology. However, some of his deductions may be regarded at the present time the fact remains that he summed up in at least a convenient form the ideas of morphological differentiation as influenced by the idea of evolution. It is true that Spencer's knowledge of plants was much of it second-hand, but his treatment of the subject was a philosophical one and in the main sound. The problems of morphology fall into two distinct classes, answering respectively to the two leading aspects of evolution. Evolution, says Spencer in his Principles of Biology, implies insensible modifications and gradual transitions which render definition difficult, which make it impossible to separate absolutely the phases of organization from one another. Thus, on inquiring what is the morphological unit, whether of plants or of animals, we find that the facts refuse to be included in any rigid formula. The doctrine that all organisms are built up of cells, or that the cells are the elements out of which every tissue is developed, is but approximately true. There are living forms of which cellular structure cannot be asserted, and in living forms that are for the most part cellular, there are nevertheless certain portions which are not produced by the metamorphosis of cells. Obviously, the earliest forms must have been minute, since, in the absence of any but diffused organic matter, no form but a minute one could find nutriment. Obviously, too, it must have been structureless, since as differentiations are producible only by the unlike actions of incident forces, there could have been no differentiations before such forces had had time to work. Hence, distinctions of parts like those required to constitute a cell were necessarily absent at first, and we need not therefore be surprised to find, as we do find, specks of protoplasm manifesting life and yet showing no signs of organization. A further stage of evolution is reached when the imperfectly integrated molecules forming one of these minute aggregates become more coherent at the same time as they pass into a state of heterogeneity, gradually increasing in its definiteness. That is to say, we may look for the assumption by them of some distinction of parts, 
such as we find in cells and in what are called unicellular organisms. They cannot retain their primordial uniformity, and while in a few cases they may depart from it slightly, they will, in the great majority of cases, acquire a decided multiformity. There will result the comparatively integrated and comparatively differentiated protophyta and protozoa. The production of minute aggregates of physiological units being the first step, and the passage of such minute aggregates into more consolidated and more complex forms being the second step, it must naturally happen that all higher organic types subsequently arising by further integrations and differentiations will everywhere bear the impress of this earliest phase of evolution. From the law of heredity, considered as extending to the entire succession of living things during the Earth's past history, it follows that since the formation of these small, simple organisms must have preceded the formation of larger and more complex organisms, the larger and more complex organisms must inherit their essential characters. We may anticipate that the multiplication and combination of these minute aggregates or cells will be conspicuous in the early developmental stages of plants and animals, and that throughout all subsequent stages, cell production and cell differentiation will be dominant characteristics. The physiological units peculiar to each higher species will, speaking generally, pass through this form of aggregation on their way toward the final arrangement they are to assume, because those primordial physiological units from which they are remotely descended aggregated into this form. Gobel more recently, naming Spencer along with Hofmeister and Socks as one who has contributed in a special degree to the science of organography, has proceeded along somewhat similar lines though with a far wider knowledge of the actual facts. In discussing the question of the elaboration of the plant body, his introductory statements are illuminating. It is manifest, he says, that the distinction of organs must have originally been based upon differences of outer form. The word blade indicates that the original conception of a leaf was that of a flat organ, which was distinguished by this character from the usually cylindric stem. Under the designation root, all subterranean organs were reckoned. It is, however, now generally known that there are leaves which have all the appearance of shoots, and the converse is also the case. External form is closely connected with function and with anatomical structure. In the vegetative organs, the form may change, accompanied by a change in anatomical structure. Metamorphosis may take place, and a flower leaf is the homologue of a foliage leaf notwithstanding that it has quite a different form. The history of development of the stem of the leaf is usually different. In the first place, the duration of development is unlike. Leaves have limited growth, shoots have unlimited growth. But there are many shoots which normally exhibit limited growth. For example, the short shoots, or spur shoots, of many conifers and broadleaf plants in the world. In this genus, the floating shoots of the water form as well as the creeping stolons of the landform, are homologous with leaves, but the difference between stem and leaf has entirely disappeared. The organs which are homologous with leaves produce flowers and other shoots and exhibit unlimited growth, and that they are really leaves with prolonged apical growth is only to be determined by a careful comparative study. Every distinction, then, that we may draw between shoot and leaf is only relative, is not fundamental. There is, however, this point still to notice. Leaves are, in most cases, outgrowths of shoe axes, and they arise on their vegetative point as lateral members. 
Nevertheless, terminal leaf organs, organs arising from the end of a shoot axis, are known. They occur in the flowers of many plants. The cotyledon in many monocotyledonous plants is terminal in the embryo. There are also monocotyledonous embryos upon which leaves arise, although no vegetative point of the axis is visible, and a similar condition is also found in isoetes. Further, the vegetative body of lemna is nothing else than the leaf-producing leaves. It is not a leafless twig, as is commonly assumed. A plant body in which the shoot axis does not exhibit differentiation into stem and leaf is termed a thallus. The expression thallus, which signifies nothing more than shoot, was first used by Acarius in describing the lichens, and subsequently it was extended to the algae, the fungi, and the thallus liverworts. There is no sharp limitation between a thallus and a leafy shoot. The external relationships of configuration of the bodies of plants are determined by the peculiarities of their living substance, the protoplasm, which in the higher plants is enclosed within the numerous cells which compose the plant. It is only among the lower plants that we find unicellular bodies. In land plants, the cellular structure is general, and the several cell chambers are separated from one another by firm walls. Here, Goebel speaks of Salk's definition of the energid as the unit of cell structure, quoting Socks, who says, By an energid, I mean a single nucleus with the protoplasm which it dominates. Thus, he distinguishes the monergic type of plant, which is unicellular but has a single nucleus, i.e. is a single energid, and the polyergic forms, which have many energids, that are usually separated into individual cells by cell walls, though in some of the lower forms they may not be. It has been possible, he continues, in a large number of cases to discover a relationship between their forms and their life functions. We see this, for example, among diatoms. The monergic cells of fixed species have a different construction from that which obtains in the actively moving or floating species. It is also clear that the pear-like form of most swarm spores is especially favorable for their movements. In other cases, however, we know so little regarding the special life relationships of the plants that we are quite unable to speak with certainty. We cannot, for example, say whether the rod-like or sickle-like desmids have relationships of a kind different from those of the plate forms. The degree in which the single energids are united with one another may be more or less intimate. A polyergic plant is either an energid colony or synobium, cellular or non-cellular, in which a division of labor between the several energids has not yet appeared, and each energid is capable of living for itself, or the energids exhibit a division of labor, and although in unison with one another, are there indifferent from one another, they form an energid dominion. This is what has come to pass in the majority of the polyergic plants. There are, of course, many transitions between these two conditions, and their separation is a measure artificial, being based upon extreme relationships. In the higher plants, the shoot is differentiated into shoot axis and leaf in all cases except in some degenerate parasites. There are, it is true, leafless shoots of limited growth, but these are quite exceptions. In the lower forms of plant life, such a differentiation of the shoot may also take place. The sexual generation of many liverworts and of the whole of the mosses shows an evident division into shoot axis and leaf, and, as has been above explained, this condition is reached among the liverworts in the most different cycles of affinity, which have developed quite independently one of the other. 
that the leaves of the sexual generation of mosses are not homologous with those of the asexual generation of the pterodophyta is sufficiently clear. But terminology is only a means to an end, and I have no hesitation in calling the leaf-like organs which we find in many thallophyta leaves. The development of morphology, both as it applies to cell and tissue structure alone, and as it applies to the study of life histories, has made rapid advances in the last few decades. There have been, and are, numerous keen investigators covering all morphological fields. The present knowledge of the structure of the individual cell has greatly increased, and the store of information regarding the embryology of the higher plants, though founded on the classic work of Hofmeister, is well nigh a new science. The study of life histories in as complete a way as possible is now the aim of morphological investigators. The morphologist, says H. M. Richards, who devotes his time to the study of life histories, is engaged in the work of tracing the race history plants from the comparison of the individual development of more or less nearly related forms. Thus the homologies which have been traced among the flowering plants and their nearest allies among the ferns and other forms indicate to us the probable race history of these groups. It is true that the beginning of this work dates back some decades, but it is still, to a large extent, an open field, and numerous investigators are actively prosecuting research along these lines. For example, the alternation of a sexual and non-sexual generation of plants, which has long been known as characteristic of the life histories of higher forms, has recently been established among the lower groups, and thus a much clearer view of the whole series of the plant kingdom is being obtained. The branch of botanical research known as ecology is one of the most inclusive. It may be regarded as an attempt to grasp the full meaning of the morphological and physiological manifestations of the living plant, not only as they concern itself, but also in their relation to all factors of its environment, whether with other organisms or with purely physical agents. It is evident that the problem is a stupendous one and in the present state of knowledge, both of physiology and morphology, it cannot be expected that necessarily permanent results are to be obtained. Nevertheless, it serves a highly important end in calling attention to and insisting upon the fact that environmental factors must influence the individual, that no organism, even a plant, is a free agent in determining its career or the career of its progeny. Ecology is the application, in a broad and more philosophical way, of the methods of the physiological anatomist coupled with those of the taxonomist. But, in addition, the work of the botanist touches the field of the physiographer and geologist. Ecology, says H. M. Richards in his Botany, is the endeavor to uncover the plan of nature as it governs the relations of the different plant forms in a given area to understand the why and the wherefore of the association of very different forms in one locality. The keynote of the philosophical development of this topic rests on the conception of the constant struggle of individuals or groups of individuals to maintain themselves against other forms, which leads to a balanced relation of the different species in a given flora. From the beginning, one of the greatest of ecological problems has been that of the origin and significance of adaptations. In other days, remarks Henry C. Cowles in his trend of ecological philosophy, the solution was sought in special creation, one of the most unscientific of all theories, because altogether subversive of experiment. The entire question was prejudged at the outset. The theory of special creation, however, 
has not been especially harmful because it has generally seemed so unlikely as to have received but little support among scientific men. Perhaps the most baneful of all ecological theories has been the Lamarckian theory of direct adaptation. The theory of natural selection has worked great harm in the ecological study of plant structures. Thorny plants have been supposed to be selected by reason of animal incursion, and such complex things as floral structures have been supposed to be the result of parallel selection on the part of flowers and insects. There is no adequate evidence, experimental or otherwise, for views of this character. Such experimental work as has been done appears to show that the success or failure of a plant rarely depends upon this or that little advantage upon which natural selection may be supposed to work, but rather that its perpetuation depends for the most part upon other things than its so-called adaptations. Few more perfect adaptations for their function can be thought of than the digestive glands of insectivorous plants and yet there is no evidence in support of the idea that such plants have been able to survive by reason of these glands. The evolution of such a complex flower as that of the orchid along lines that are parallel with the evolution of the mouthparts of a special insect requires a nicety of operation that seems staggering, and all the more because the flower, at least, seems to have evolved so far along the lines of zygomorphy as to be a source of disadvantage rather than of advantage an impossible idea to the natural selectionist. The facts of regeneration show that plants and animals are often in a position to make an instant new reaction to conditions unlike those to which they have ever been accustomed, and that these reactions may or may not be advantageous. In any case, natural selection can have no possible connection with their origin. The trend of the time, especially among botanists, is unmistakably toward the abandonment of natural selection as a theory of evolution, but ecological work is finding a dominant place for it as one of the controlling factors in succession. The student of vegetative dynamics, more perhaps than any other, finds displayed before him an incessant struggle for existence. In the changing conditions, the fitness of an old species to remain, or of a new species to displace it, is commonly a matter of profound importance in the vegetative change produced. To the working ecologists, the necessary consequences of the abandonment of the idea of adaptation and of natural selection as a causative factor are most vital. First and foremost, there comes the possibility of disadvantageous trends in evolution. To some extent, such tendencies will be checked by the destructive operation of natural selection, so that only such new species as are most fit are likely to survive and have progeny. But in view of the ideas that have generally prevailed in past years, it cannot be emphasized too strongly that plants may retain useless structures, and even structures that are moderately harmful, and yet live on if they also possess other structures or habits that are sufficiently advantageous. This conception at once relieves ecologists of one of the most arduous of their former duties, the establishment of an advantageous function for every organ and of a benefit in every function. End of section 26, Botany, Organography, and Adaptation. Recording by Madison Rutherford.